0: Good morning and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. Today we'll turn our attention to Garner Art Center and my guest is Robin Rosenberg. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for original documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Lawveld House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. It's listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's a newly designated New York State Path Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland with the people of Rockland, and we rely on financial support from membership and donations from people just like you. To learn how you can become a member or to volunteer, please visit our website at rocklandhistory.org. Today's broadcast was pre-recorded, so we will not be taking calls today from listeners. Welcome to Robin Rosenberg uh, to Crossroads of Rockland History and thank you so much for being here today. Before we begin our exploration of the Garner Arts Center, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Hi Claire, I'm very happy to be here with you today. Uh, I was born in Rockland but grew up elsewhere in New York State and in Massachusetts. I attended college in Boston, moved to New York City, where I attended law school, and then worked as an attorney in in New York City at a major environmental land use law firm where I became a partner. I actually changed my life to come back to Rockland to work to transform the Garnerville Arts and Industrial Center.
0: So the very beginning of industry in Garnerville began in the 18th century, right? Yes, actually in 1760,
1: a man named Cornelius Osborne purchased the property and he operated a grist mill due to the location on the Minisiango Creek and nearby the Minisiango Creek Waterfall.
0: And like so many important industries of the time, it's water and the power of that water that really impacted the growth of the business.
1: Absolutely. Water powered the equipment and was necessary in certain processes. In addition, the site was in close proximity to the Hudson River, which made the site very valuable. So in 1830, a man named John Glass purchased 45 acres along Railroad Avenue here on which to build a plant-to-print calico.
0: And then the Garner name came later, right?
1: That's right. In 1831, Mr. Glass and 13 others were killed on board a ship while loading the plant's first shipment of goods, and the plant closed so it was vacant for a few years and was then purchased in 1838 by the Garner brothers who expanded it. At that time the Garner print works employed more than 800 people and in the 1840s the mill here in Garnerville was the largest employer in the area generating 11 million yards of cloth which is enough cloth to furnish every woman in America with a dress at that time. The plant then later became known as the Rockland print works in 1853 the Printworks created 173 housing units for workers. They built a YMCA. They hosted social events, had daycare for children. They also built the water tunnels and sewer lines and put in dams to ensure water for dyeing wool, cotton, and linen. In fact, many of these features, this infrastructure, is still in use today and is the reason the area became known as Garnerville.
0: And the plant played an important role in the Civil War, didn't it?
1: It did. The plant made uniforms for the Union Army during the war the Garners had been faced with a decrease in the demand for their goods during the war, resulting in the print works changing course and supporting the Union cause through the production of uniforms.
0: And in the late 19th and very early 20th century was an incredible boom time for the factory, is that right?
1: Oh gosh, yes, the plants were prolific. The Garners limited supply in the face of demand and they had a cash only no return policy. This actually drove up their profile and drove up demand and the prices of their goods. They accumulated vast wealth, opening mills in Cohoes, in Newburgh, and Wappingers Falls, and in Connecticut. In fact, it was so prolific, the Garner stock was traded on the New York Stock Exchange, and the market would rise and fall, depending on how well the Garner Print Works was doing. In 1876, William Garner and his wife died in a yachting accident off Staten Island. And His death caused the New York Tribune to say, there is probably no single man connected with cotton manufacturing interests in the world whose loss will make itself more generally felt. And at that time, William Garner was worth $19 million. A few years later, Garner & Company was declared the largest calico printworks in the world, and by 1884, the facility here in Garnerville had an annual output of over a million dollars worth of goods.
0: And then, like so many businesses, uh, the Great Depression devastated the economy and including the factory so tell us a little bit about that
1: well that's
0: exactly right
1: the mills shut down all of garnerville was out of work and remember the community was built around this mill so when the mills left you've got an entire almost entire village or hamlet out of work so it was a dire situation for the entire community Everything in the plant was abandoned and the physical plant
0: began to deteriorate. Your family's involvement in the Garner Dye Works came after that downturn. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, in 1934, a group of businessmen from the Haverstraw community, one of whom was my grandfather, Louis Rosenberg, who owned a furniture store called the Beehive in Haverstraw, pooled their money and formed the Garnerville Holding Company, which is still the property owner here today. The original business owners, also including an oil man, insurance man, and others, sold shares in the new corporation to other local merchants. And in doing so, the Garnerville Holding Company actually became one of the first industrial cooperatives in America. The Garnerville Holding Company obtained a matching grant from FDR's Reconstruction Finance Program in order to lure the textile mills back to the complex and back to Garnerville by providing them with free rent. They only had to pay for their steam-generated electricity, which was generated on site from the waterfall. The entire Garnerville community was put back to work and there was dancing in the streets and it was a big celebration for everyone.
0: The tremendous impact of immigrants is significant when we speak about Haverstraw and Garnerville. Can you tell us a little bit about how immigration was part of the history of the factory?
1: Well, working in the brickyards in Haverstraw and the dye houses at the Garnerville Textile Mill was hard work, and the companies had difficulty getting workers. In the 1940s, some Hispanics, uh, I believe from Puerto Rico initially, had started coming to the area, leaving their families at home in the hopes of finding jobs here in America and earning enough money to bring their families over. In the 50s and the 60s, the textile mills and other businesses realized that there was a a large, dependable labor force readily available for jobs with difficult working conditions, and the companies would actually pay higher wages so as to keep their employees. This attracted Hispanics wanting to bring their families over, and so they took these better-paying but much more difficult jobs. And that ultimately led to an influx of uh, both Puerto Ricans and Dominicans who now form a significant part of the population here in Haverstraw.
0: The mid-20th century was a resurgence for the factory, right?
1: The textile mills flourished, absolutely, during that time. i Mentioned though that the Garnerville Holding Company, which owned the property, really wasn't making a lot of money. Remember, they had brought the textile companies back here by giving them free rent. So over time, the property, or I should say the owners, were having difficulty maintaining the property. But the textile mills, yes, indeed, they were flourishing.
0: But the 1980s brought another downturn. Isn't that right?
1: Things got very bad very quickly here in the 1980s. In the face of rising wages, taxes, and environmental regulations, the textile industry shut the doors and moved south or even out of the country. They left the mill here in Garnerville, an absolute disaster. Buildings and equipment were abandoned, they were just left there. Product was just thrown about, roofs leaked. Stacks were crumbling, and as I had mentioned before, with no money for repairs, the physical plant was deteriorating, and the complex was spiraling downward.
0: You're listening to WRCR in Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and today I'm speaking with Robin Rosenberg, and our topic is the Garner Art Center. Just as a reminder, although this is normally a call-in show, we won't be taking any calls today because Robin Rosenberg and I are recording this interview at the Garner Arts Center in advance of the broadcast date. So when the 1990s rolled around, that's when your personal involvement began with the factory. So tell us what you were doing at the time and what your involvement was then.
1: I was in New York City actually practicing law in the early 1990s when I received a phone call from my father asking me if I would join the board of directors up here in Garnerville at the Garnerville Holding Company. And of course, it's my dad asking me, and I said, yes, of course. I could spare one morning every month to come up for a board of directors meeting. And when I came through the Railroad Avenue entrance and saw this complex for the first time since I was a small child, I was exhilarated. I was I was just thrilled. I had goosebumps. I immediately envisioned the facility as a place where artists could thrive. At the same time, I knew how challenging it would be because I could just see the disrepair that the facility was in.
0: So tell us a little bit about what inspired you, what other places you had visited that had given you the inspiration for what this place could be.
1: Well, to start, I always have had a love of historic buildings since childhood when my family lived after leaving Rockland County upstate in a former stagecoach inn on the old Albany Post Road. So I've always been fascinated with history and that was part of my inspiration. But at the time I was reintroduced to the complex, I really didn't have a lot of role models. I've had many others since. I've watched other complexes and industrial buildings develop more rapidly, in fact, than, than mine. Uh, for example, Mass Mocha, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, was a textile mill as well. And I spent some of my childhood in the Berkshire, so I was quite familiar with that complex. But it actually opened after I was inspired by the Garnerville facility. Uh, but there are many others, Dia Beacon in Beacon, New York, the Distillery District in Toronto. There are so many examples of historic facilities, textile mills or other types of mills that have been transformed and adaptively reused for arts and cultural purposes, or even in some cases, living and retail.
0: So when you got involved, how much of the history of your grandfather's involvement in the first rebirth of the factory had you known about?
1: I knew virtually nothing, to be quite honest. I, I remember as a family, when I was small, we drove by the complex, and our dad pointed out to us the complex and mentioned that we had an ownership interest in the facility. And I think all of us, being little kids at the time, and we, we looked at these massive brick buildings and they looked dirty to us, we just, you know, shuddered. And ever since then, whenever I heard about the complex, I turned a deaf ear pretty much, and that all changed, like I mentioned, when I came back to the complex for the first time in 30 years, and I was just smitten. So when I joined the board of directors, I was here one morning a month, and one of the first things that I felt that we needed to tackle was we needed to make the buildings rentable, and so we started out with a re-roofing project. And after we finished a re-roofing project, there were second floor spaces that were just full of junk, and it, it it took me several meetings, probably easily a half a year, to convince the board of directors to try to convert some of those abandoned second floor spaces into artist studio spaces, and I basically told them, look, you've got nothing to lose. It's just sitting vacant now. Let me try to do this. So I I was responsible for that project and the division of spaces into studio spaces. And we made them attractive to artists with big, wide loading doors and slop sinks and started to do section by section. As one section got filled with artists, we would do a second section, a third and a fourth. And when that building was filled, we moved to another building and did the same thing. Ultimately, then, we had enough artists here to... Hold our first arts festival, which we did in 2001. And that was absolute labor of love on the part of all of the artists. We all worked together to make the first arts festival happen. And it was successful. We didn't even have resources to market at that time but through word of mouth and putting up posters we had enough attendance that we thought this is worth doing again so we did it again in 2002 and 2003 and it grew each year so uh, at that point though we needed more organization and I then incorporated the Garnival Arts Project as a not-for-profit to hold the arts festivals and to start holding exhibitions throughout the year Uh, So that's basically how we got started.
0: And then there was a natural disaster that had a significant impact on your vision and your efforts. Tell us a little bit about what that was and the impact it had.
1: In August of 2011, Hurricane Irene hit our area. And it dumped so much water in this region that upstream dams and reservoirs overtopped. And a wall of water virtually just came through the complex, along with trees and debris, uh, which clogged up the waterway that runs through our complex, and as a result, this wall of water couldn't go into the channel where the creek was. It it started to come up at floor level. It was an absolute, absolute disaster. It was horrifying. The buildings, uh, many of the buildings, got flooded, and and the worst thing of all was that the Garner Art Center had its gallery in a building which actually just it fell down i mean the water and debris that was inside the building and other implements of destruction acted as battering ram against the wall in the downstairs and it pushed the wall out causing the entire building to fall along with some priceless artwork that was in the gallery at the time right into the creek and that also blocked the passage of water, which then adversely affected water levels in the other buildings that were then flooding. So I mean, I don't know if you can hear it, but there's pain in my voice just even thinking about it. It was really traumatic for all of us, and not just for me personally, as I watched, you know, my, my hope, my dream, my vision fall into the creek, but for our employees and for all of the tenants and artists here, no one believed that such a thing could happen and it happened right before our eyes. So, it was quite devastating and we did not know originally what the future of the complex was going to be or the future of the art center. Our immediate reaction, my immediate reaction was well, you know, we are in an emergency situation. We have to deal with the emergencies that are confronting us. So, that's what we started working on. And I felt a responsibility too to my employees and to tenant businesses here. So, while we were all grieving, we were all working very, very hard just to put the complex back together again. Uh, we had to rebuild bridges that, that fell. It was, um, it was a disaster area. It, it
0: looked like a war zone. But in spite of this incredible hardship, you did not give up. And so to what do you owe your resilient spirit in the face of this incredible hardship?
1: I think it's determination. I think it's not wanting to give up on my dreams, still believing in them, believing in the future of the complex. Also, the fact that my grandfather had taken this complex from another type of disaster, the Great Depression, and put his energy into trying to do something good for the community by reopening it to put people back to work here. And I felt that I had a responsibility for myself and to him even to to see that, to see the situation through. And, and I, I'm a determined person, and I work hard. And so as a result, we just kept working towards the future. And believe me, there were many who were urging us to close the doors and to move on. And I just felt I, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror. So I kept moving forward, and I kept my dreams alive.
0: So, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Seven to Save program and how the Garner Arts Center has been involved in that.
1: One of the directors of the nonprofit Garner Arts Center board called me up one morning, and he had a friend who had told him about this Seven to Save program. And it sounded interesting to me. It was a program of the Preservation League of the State of New York. And I said, well, that sounds great. Why don't you get me the information, and I'll look into it. And he said to me, well, the application is due today. So I uh, took a deep breath, and I called upon my inner attorney after having practiced law for 18 years. And I said, okay, I, I can do this. I used to write briefs. I can, I can write um, a grant application to the Preservation League for the 7 to save program. And the 7 to save program is um, a program where the Preservation League every two years designates seven sites in the state of New York that they deem worthy of saving. And through that designation, you become eligible to apply for other grants through the Preservation League. And um, I applied that day. I got that application in shortly before. It was due at 5 p.m., and lo and behold, we were designated a 7 to save site. We were very fortunate because, as I said, that program led to other grants, and one of them was a grant to pay a preservation consultant to file a historic register nomination for the facility and that was incredibly helpful and incredibly meaningful because it led to the designation of this complex as a historic district by the state of new york and it is also now listed on the national register of historic places as the rockland print Works historic district
0: so the fact that it's now on the national register how does that help you going forward with your plans
1: it does make us eligible for for grants from the new york state historic preservation and uh, in fact we're hoping to apply for some grants shortly in that regard so that's one of the key elements for us i'm proud of the designation just because i think it's important to save our historic sites a bit of the past is what informs our present and i think it's inspirational for for the community and and residents and, and kids to have that connection to the past.
0: So you talked earlier a little bit about the festival and how it got started, but how has it evolved over the years?
1: Well, it was growing every year that we had since we started. We expanded the festival into music. We began to have more installation work. We started to utilize found spaces, empty factories, warehouses in the complex to install art exhibitions. It all stopped of course after the hurricane and we did not have a festival after the hurricane until 2015. So last year was our first arts festival and we've just held our second arts festival since the hurricane and we're building back up our attendance. But we were pre-hurricane receiving visitors of between five to 6,000 each year at Arts Festival, which is a great thing for our community and for local business and restaurants, B&Bs, and puts Carnival on the map. So we see it as a significant factor in economic development, and that's our goal. And I'm sure we're gonna keep increasing. We increased visitor attendance this year, over last year, and we'll continue to build.
0: So recently, the municipality changed the zoning for the complex. So tell us what impact that will have on the future of the complex.
1: Well, this is something very ex- we're very excited about. We've been working with the Village of West Haverstraw mayor and board of trustees on this for some time, and they're excited with us. This new zoning expands the uses that we can have at the complex. So the existing light industrial uses will remain, of course, but new uses such as uh, training centers and wellness centers, professional offices, the ability to sell products that are made here and we're really excited to welcome industrial arts brewing which is a new craft brewery opening this summer at the complex and part of this zoning allows them to have tables and chairs to sell what they make to sell their beer we also have a coffee warehouse distribution company here and they have future plans to open a coffee house So that part of the zoning, which allows us to have tables and chairs and seating, is going to be a huge draw for visitors, will bring people to the complex, I think will help elevate all of the businesses within the complex and bring more people to the community.
0: So has your vision for the complex changed over the years, or are you still basically working with the same vision?
1: You know, Claire, the vision has always been changing because it keeps evolving the immediate vision was creating studios business and bringing in artists Um, that was the first vision and then you know the next vision was having arts festivals and bringing people in and from that vision we built the nonprofit arts center with the goal of having arts exhibitions and education programs to bring students in as well and then that vision was growing until a hurricane put an end to a lot of that. But now in the aftermath of the hurricane, my vision has grown even more. I I would like the complex and working towards developing the complex as an arts business and cultural destination for our area. And uh, so that's my current goal. It's economic development through tourism.
0: So do you have any advice for budding preservationists out there?
1: Preservation is extremely worthwhile, but also um, requires a lot of labor of love and hard work and determination. It's not always easy, but there are really resources out there to help you get started. There's uh, preservation consultants and the Preservation League of New York. I can't recommend them enough. They were just so helpful to us in our endeavors. So it's a long road, and you need some staying power, but it's absolutely worth it. I mean, it's it's exhilarating to see the restoration of a of a historic building and and use it adaptively in the twenty first century.
0: So, if our listeners want to get involved or learn more about the Garner Arts Center, how can they do that?
1: please go to our website, GarnerArtsCenter.org, GarnerArtsCenter.org. The website has a lot of information about our exhibitions, our programs, and how you can help. We are in the process of trying to rebuild a new gallery in the former cafeteria building for the textile mill. And so that's, that's a challenge, but we are progressing, and we'd love everybody to come visit, participate in our events. We are back to full season of programming now, and we have a new program director. So things are really moving forward. Things are hopping here. We have a great new future ahead of us, and we hope you'll all come join us.
0: So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Robin Rosenberg from the Garner Arts Center. And remember that a listing of everything we talked about as well as a recording of this broadcast will be on our website at rocklandhistory.org. And I hope you will tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History on Monday, July 18th, right after the Steve and Jordan Morning Show at 10:10 a.m. Don't forget to visit our website to learn about our upcoming events and programs, including our boat trip on the Hudson, entitled the Tappan Zee Bridge Experience, Past, Present, and Future. Join fellow history enthusiasts on the River Rose paddle wheeler for an excursion on the mighty Hudson to view the largest infrastructure project in the country up close and personal. Find out more at rocklandhistory.org or call us at 845-634-9629. That's rocklandhistory.org or 845-634-9629. A great way to keep up with what's happening is to follow us on Facebook. We also tweet regularly and you can find us on our Tumblr blog by typing in Crossroads of Rockland History there. Don't forget that many of our broadcasts are archived at rocklandhistory.org. Just go to our landing page and type radio programs in the search box. I'm Claire Sheridan. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR and wrcr.com.